Thank you, John. All right, we are, uh, as you can see from the highlighted features here, we're going to finish up the book of Ezekiel this morning. We're almost to the end of section four, preparation for restoration. We've got a few more chapters there. And then the last section, nine chapters, is, is called renewed worship. So this chapter that we're going to begin with, chapter 39 is very famous, or 37 I mean, it's pretty famous, Valley of Dry Bones. Everyone of course knows this song, the Negro spiritual song written early part of the 20th century on this. I tried to find out some of the history of that song. I found out who wrote it, but I couldn't find out what, what the purpose was. Well, the guy that wrote it was very active in the civil rights movement. He's a black, he's a black guy, and my guess is that he was viewing it as kind of restoration of his people from the consequences of slavery, and that's not that—that's actually not that far off from the meaning of the chapter here in Ezekiel, because. Um, the dry bones represent what? Dead people. Well, yes and no. <laughs> um, let me see if I can find the verse here. Um, yeah, here it is in verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. So they're using the phrase dry bones to represent the fact that the nation itself is dead. Um, I'm not certain that the intention of the chapter was to talk about the resurrection yet to come. I, I think it's talking about the resurrection of the people of God. That They've gone into captivity. It looks like they're dead and He's going to, he's going to rescue them out of this. Um, <clears throat> Ultimately, of course, it's, it's a prophecy of the church. As you see in verse 24, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in My ordinances and keep My statutes and observe them. It's, um, it's just a very um, uh, pictorial way of emphasizing that God's going to do the impossible. He's going to take these people that, are, that have been taken into captivity, and it just seems like their hope is completely dried up. There's nothing for them. And He's going to make them live. In fact, He asked in verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live? And what was the answer? You know. Yeah, that's a good answer, isn't it? Oh Lord God, You know. Um, Ezekiel has had enough experience with God. He has enough faith in Him to understand that He doesn't know and there's no way humanly to figure this out. Um, it's up to God. And so God then tells them to do what? Prophesy to the bones, yeah. <clears throat> Which if you think about it, that's kind of what He's been doing this whole time. He's been prophesying to a bunch of people that are spiritually dead and they're not paying the least bit of attention to Him even though they enjoy hearing it. But, and of course, if He prophesies the bones, it's not going to do any good unless God is the one who puts life into them. And... And so God does this in, in several stages. What's the first stage? 
They get the bones connected together, and then the next stage, yeah, you you put flesh on them, but there's a big bit of a problem left, and what's that? There's no breath. Yeah, so <laughs> there's a bunch of corpses at this point. So then he prophesies to the wind, and the wind comes and and breathes life in them, and they stand on their feet. In verse ten, an exceedingly great army. So then in verse 11 begins the explanation of, of what this means. And in verse 14 he says, I will put My Spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Um, then, at, in the second half of the chapter, starting in verse 15, he has another uh, little, little thing that he acts out. And what is that? Now he writes on on these two sticks that he's got Ephraim, he's got Judah, and he holds them in his hand to make one. And what's the what's that going to mean? Yeah, God's going to solve the problem of the divided kingdom, which has started um, four hundred or more years earlier. It's been a long time. But it's not going to be that way anymore. It's going to be one nation. Unity. And that's when we get to verse 24 where um, He says, My servant David will be king over them. And in verse 27 He says, My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God. And they will be My people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when My sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now later on we're going to see the vision of His sanctuary being in their midst. But we got a bit of a down downer in the meantime here. We've got to talk about this nation called Gog. Gog, and what's the other one? Whenever you think of Gog, you always think of another one. Magog. And the reason why we think of those two, even though there's some others listed here, is that in the book of Revelation, in chapter 20, it specifically refers to Gog and Magog in the battle. Um, now, this this invasion here lasts for two chapters. It's 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 just an amazing invasion. Um, in verse three, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. And I will bring you out, and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them slenderly attired, a great company, etc., etc. And he's going to do something with them. He's going to bring them out to attack who? Israel, Israel yes. In verse 8, After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. But his people were brought out from the nations and they are living securely. All of them. So there's a gap here. It, verse, chapter 38 does not immediately follow chapter 37. Chapter 37 is the resurrection of Israel, the people of God, which as I, I've suggested, I think that means the spiritual people of God, the church, especially when he has his servant David being king over them. And now you have this long gap, many days, latter years, and now you have this huge invasion of, of these enemies of God's people. 
And so in verse 10, he says, Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan and you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates. It just is a defenseless people and these people can just take advantage of it. So down in verse 16, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. So even though I'm sure Gog doesn't know this, Gog thinks that this is his idea, he wants to attack Israel, God says, I'm the one doing this. I'm, I'm calling you to do this. And what's God's goal? Yeah, so that he'll be sanctified through them. They'll see that he is the Lord. Um, and so down in verse 22, with pestilence, with blood, I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain on him and on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, a torrential rain with hailstones, stones, fire, and brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. Now, in the book of Revelation, when this is referred to, where does it appear in the chronology? At the end of time. At the end of time, yeah. At, in Revelation chapter 20, you have the thousand years when Satan is bound. At the end of the thousand years, he's released for a short time, and that's when Gog and Magog attack the camp, God's camp. And, and then God steps in and he... he wipes them out. Now, I'm sure most of you are aware, I mean, different people have different ideas on what the thousand years represents. The way we took it, and this is the way that I think most brethren will take the thousand years, is that it's what it's the time that we're in right now. From the time that Jesus died on the cross until almost before He comes back again is the thousand years. And it's a time when Satan is bound. He cannot do what he, what he would like to do. But when he gets released at this end, and I have no idea, you know, are we at year 999 or are we year 472? Or I mean, I don't know where we are in the thousand years. <laughs> but when, when God decides a thousand years are up, he, Satan's going to do uh, uh, this terrible deed of, of having Gog and Magog attack God's people. And it's... it's if it wasn't for God rescuing them, it would be it would be curtains for everybody, as you can see in in this chapter thirty eight here. That um, it's all, I mean they're in unwalled villages. How how can they defend themselves against this, this huge host? But God God's the one that do it does it by raining fire and brimstone on them. Yeah, John. Uh, the fire and brimstone and such uh, brings to mind uh, uh, the plagues on Egypt, and one of the purposes God had was to make Himself. But known, and initially started to make himself known to Moses, make himself known to the Hebrew people, make himself known to Pharaoh. And but this section here says he make him, by sanctifying himself, make himself known to the nations. Yeah. So there's, a, there's a pattern. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, God's whole goal in creating the earth was to make himself known. Yeah. And uh, Satan's goal is to try to steal the glory that belongs to God and take it for himself. <coughs> God uses Satan ultimately to give himself glory. All right, now in 
I said this went for two chapters. So chapter 39 is a prophecy of the destruction of Gog. And so he says, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, drive you on, take you up from the remotest parts of the earth, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. And then, of course, he, as soon as they get there, he, he, he defeats them. I will strike your bow from your left hand and dash down your arrows from your right hand. Um, in verse 7, My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And when he says anymore, of course, you go back in the book of Ezekiel and the people have been profaning his name all the time. He's not going to let that happen anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. And then he starts telling about the aftermath of the battle. In verse 9, how many weapons are there left over after this whole army is killed? Firewood. Yeah, they got seven years worth of firewood <laughs> just from all, all these spears and arrows and everything else they had for their weapons. Um, and and then they bury, it takes them seven months to bury all these people. Um, in verse 23, the nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against me and I hid my face from them. So I gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and all of them fell by the sword. So we've had this problem before in the book, where God understands when the people go into exile, it tarnishes God's name because God, everyone knows that God was their their God, and if if His people go into captivity, He looks like a really pathetic God. And but you know, God understood that. He, he didn't have any choice. These people had committed this iniquity, but He wants to redeem His name. And that's what He's doing in, in this chapter here. So in verse 25, thus, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery, which they perpetrated against me when they lived securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. And finally, the chapter ends, verse 29, I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my Spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. We've seen these same sorts of prophecies in Jeremiah as well about you know, God's going to... They're not going to have to teach every man his brother to know the Lord. Everyone will know Him. Um, all of these, are, I think, are saying much the same thing, that God is going to have a people for Himself that are not going to tarnish His holy name anymore, and He will defend them from, from the enemies. And there, in, from our perspective in time, there is still this great battle to come when God will finally show His great power on behalf of His people when you have this huge attack against the, the people of God. All right, so now that finishes the section on preparation for restoration. So now we enter the section called Renewed Worship. I'm popping up three chapters at one time here. <laughs> 40, 41, and 42. What are all three of these chapters about? Well, measuring out. Yeah, measuring out the temple. And my guess is, as you read this, you were thinking... 
I don't have any idea what's being talked about here. So I have a picture. <laughs> this is really a good... I, I re- this was very helpful to me. <clears throat> In fact, if, if any of you want a copy of this, I, I, I can, I've got an extra one. I can, get, I can print some more if you want to take home, home with you. Because once I got this picture and then I read these chapters with the picture in front of me, the chapters made a lot more sense. And I, I just want to go through, I'm not going to go through the chapter verse by verse at all, but they have a key over here on the left. Now, it's a little, unfortunately, this is the best copy I could find. This, this thing's all over the internet. A lot of different sites have this picture, but they're all exactly the same. Uh, the letters are fuzzy. So we'll start with A for altar, and, and you can barely see a little letter A there right next to the altar. So that, <clears throat> that's where we are. Now this, this is not in the order of the chapters. I'm not quite sure how they did the order. Um, but we'll just follow A, B all the way through. And they skipped a few letters too, and I don't know why for that. But the letter B is for the temple porch and entrance. And if you look carefully, on top of the temple there's letter B here. It's right on top of the porch to the temple. Then moving on in, you have the letter C, which is the holy place, which is where the ordinary priests were allowed to go. They went in there you know, a couple times a day. Letter D is the entrance into the most holy. So if we were looking inside, we would see, I think there's some stairs up to it. I don't remember for sure. And then finally, letter E is the most holy place, which of course... Who was the only one allowed in that room? The high priest. Yeah. And just one day a year he was allowed to go in there. <clears throat> now we go to letter H, separate places in the inner court. And there's these little aisles here, and you can barely see that H there, and over here you can barely see an H. But there's little aisles there on each side, which I think in the King James are called the separate places. <clears throat> um, then we have letter I is priest chambers. There's an I on, on that building. And on this building is also letter I. Um, and you see, these two buildings are actually... Actually, uh, there's another I. Uh, there, there's four different buildings, I, I believe. All called the priest's uh, priest chambers. In those chambers, they would change their clothes to, to, uh, uh, to get ready to go in. And then after they would been in the temple, they'd come back out and they'd leave the clothes behind, put their ordinary clothes back on. Um, and then, you know, three stories. I mean, it's pretty elaborate. Quite, quite a few different rooms there. <clears throat> then J, priest's boiling places. And I had to look and look. I think I could barely see a letter J back there, but I'm, I'm, I'm quite certain that... No, I'm sorry, there's the J over here. There's a letter J, and then on the other side is the J. This is an area where they would boil the meat from the sacrifices. K is the western building, and Ezekiel never tells us what the building's for. It's just a building back there. Um, L, here, now we're in um, this sort of middle court. You have this very inner court, you have this outer court in, in between. You have what's, what's called the upper pavement. And the letter L is for the Levites' chambers. Letter M is for the singer's chambers. There's another chamber like that here which doesn't have a letter on it. Um, then um, we come to this porch here and it's divided into one, two, three, 
four different, five, there's actually five different sections. N is the um, porch gate, O is the inner threshold, P on each side are six little chambers. These are chambers for the guards. Um, so if we were inside the gate, we'd see as you walk through on each side, there's, I think there's three rooms on each side, or maybe six on each side, I forget which now. And then Q is the entry, and R is finally the door of the gate as you go in. And you have the exact same thing with this outer gate here, um, except the letters go in the other direction, N-O-Q-R, with R pointing to the outside. But they all also have the, the chambers for the guards on each side. Um, S is private steps. Uh, here, you, here on this side, on this side, you have steps into this area where the, the priests and the Levites uh, would, would go. Um, and T is four tables. Here you have tables actually in the outer court where they would slaughter the animals and, and wash them preparing for the sacrifice. These are for the, the people's sacrifices, not for the priest's sacrifices. V are 30 chambers. All the way along here on three sides are, are these chambers, uh, rooms, in other words. And this is called the lower pavement along all the way on the inside of this little colonnaded area. And then finally, W, as the four corners, are uh, boiling places for the ordinary people. So it's... Um, it's quite elaborate. The, the distance from this gate to that gate was, uh, does anyone know how far that was? It's 100 cubits. Um, the whole width from here to there is 500 cubits. Now, these cubits were actually a little bit longer than normal cubits. But if, if they were normal cubits, I figured you could easily put two football fields end to end in, in, in either direction of this, of this square inside this court. So that's just to try to give you an idea of the scale. Now the next picture I've got, um, someone I guess made a model of this. And this gives you some idea, I mean, if you, if you look at the, the size of these steps and you look at how tall, I mean, I'm pretty sure these each of these porches was 60 cubits high, which means 90 feet. I mean, it's, it's really tall. Um, we'll get to the little blue line later on in the, in the book, although I'm sure everyone knows what that's about. Um, the one difference I noticed in this picture, they put a wall here around the inner court which really helped me to understand, at one point it was talking about this inner court was 100 cubits by 100 cubits. And on, on the previous picture, you don't get that, you don't see that little wall there, and so you don't really realize, you know, there's a square court there. But the square court is what surrounds this altar of, of uh, burnt offering. Uh, and then beyond this wall are this place where they call the... Um, now I forget what the name of that was. Let me go back and see what are those. Uh, it's H. Separate places is what they were calling them. Um, so I, I wish they had some people on here. It'd be nice to have some statue people to really get the 
a feeling of the size because they, they would be pretty tiny. And when you figure that you could play a game of football in this area here, I mean, full-size court uh, or, or field, um, it's, a, it's a very large area. And you notice that this is being designed with perfect figures in mind so that the outer area is a perfect square and you have the, the inner court here that's a perfect square and all of it's designed um, with, with, with perfect figures in mind. Do we know what the chambers were and the outer periphery on the three sides? I don't think we do. I don't know what they use those rooms for. Um, Season ticket holders. <laughs> Watch the game. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I don't know. I, I would... I know that in the days of Jesus, now I, I don't think I don't think this temple was ever built. I mean, it, this was an ideal temple. It, it, it does, although built I don't think it'll ever be built because I think it represents the church. Um, uh, I mean, it it wouldn't make sense now to have something built with animal sacrifices when the Book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our once for all sacrifice. But it. Well, in fact, let me just go into that a little. Um, Ezekiel is God is having Ezekiel use language that would be meaningful to the people of Ezekiel's day, and so he's describing what they knew, what they knew of worship to God, and their sacrifices. I mean, what we know of worship to, to God and, and sacrifice is the cross of Christ and, and remembering that. But that would have been meaningless at the time. I mean, how, how could he describe something with a cross and, and with Lord's Supper? I mean, none of that would have made any sense to those people. So he, this is the, this is, rep, is showing us the ultimate meaning of the Old Testament sacrifices. It's, it's designed to lead us up to Christ. And, and it really represents what we have now. We, God is... A, is Dwelling among us now, and and the sacrifice we have is a sacrifice of Christ, as well as uh, the sacrifice of our own uh, works in His service. Now, the sacrifices we do are not sacrifices for sin; they are thank offerings, just like they had the thank offerings back in the temple. But as as you read these chapters and and, and the chapters that follow about the service in the temple. The, the emphasis over and over and over is God is holy. God is separate. And we'll see this as we go on a, a little bit. Um, but I don't think this exact temple was ever built. And, and, and now that Christ has done away with the old law, I don't think it would even make sense for it ever to be built like this. Um, but what it represents was built. And, and the initial fulfillment is the church. As we'll see when we get to the uh, the water part, we'll see where the church fulfills that. Although ultimately, all of it's pointing to the, the last couple chapters of Revelation, where you have this perfect city, and God, and there's no temple at all in it at that point. God is the temple. All right. Um, so let's go back. Um, Chapter 43, the vision of God returning to His temple. Um, 
And in verse verse 4, the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. Which I should have explained. The temple faces east. Um, So, God is coming through this gate here and through this gate there into the temple. Now this chapter corresponds, it's the, it's the flip side to the earlier vision, I forget which chapter it was, when Ezekiel saw the glory of God leaving the temple. You remember that? He left the temple and then he destroyed everybody in the city. Um, now he's coming back to the temple now that we have a perfect temple designed to correspond with His holiness. In verse 7, this is chapter 43, He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings when they die. Um, And then down to verse 10, As for you, son of man, Describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the plan. He wanted the Israelites to realize that as holy as God was, their sins were just terrible. I mean, think about it. If if any of us were just to go back into a life of sin and just do whatever we please, the one thing that would really be missing in our lives would be a vision of the holiness of God. You can't live that kind of life if you understand how holy God is. And, and that's, that's why Ezekiel is, is, is supposed to give the people this vision so they can understand. You're not serving a God of the nations. You're serving the God of the universe and He is holy and you need to be ashamed of how you've behaved. And, and apparently some of the people were ashamed because when they came back, they rebuilt the temple. Again, they, they couldn't rebuild it on this scale, but they did rebuild the temple and they did their best to try to, to worship God. Alright, then we have the gate for the prince and, and in the same chapter, laws for the Levite, which I'm not going to spend any time on, but the, the gate part. Which gate are we talking about? In chapter 44. East gate, yes. It's the east gate. God, God brought him back to the east gate and it says it was shut in verse 1. Then verse 2, The Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, he shall sit in it as prince to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the porch of the gate and shall go out by the same way. So... Now, I think he's probably talking about this gate here, but I am. I'm not, I mean, there's two east gates, so it's a little bit hard to know, but I think he's talking about the inner, innermost gate. Um, <clears throat> then, <clears throat> we start dividing up the land. We've, we've, the center of the land is going to be the temple, but there's more to it. And in chapter 45, um, there's a portion of the land specifically for the Lord and a portion for the prince. Now the portion that's for the Lord is used by the priests and by the Levites. And the prince would of course be who? That, that's the king. And we know the king is the son of David. We've already learned that. So ultimately we're talking about Jesus. Um, 
And so in verse 8, this shall be his land for a possession in Israel. So my princes shall no longer oppress my people, but they shall give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes. Now, I've got a diagram of this. Um, here we have the P represents the, the prince's area. The, um, the star represents a sanctuary. The priests have the land around that, and then the Levites. Then there's the city at the bottom with the workers having land around that. Uh, we'll look at this. We'll look at another diagram later on. It does much the same thing. But right now we're just talking about this area here. And the, the reason that the reason God gives the prince his own land is because the kings in the past have been stealing land from the people. One of the more famous ones, of course, was when Ahab stole Naboth's vineyard. But they've been doing this, you know, you know, all along. And and God is most upset. He wants the people to have their land, and so he's given the prince land. Now the prince can't just, you know, get rich off this land. He has to supply the sacrifices for the temple off of his land. So he has a job as well. Um, then in chapter 46, we, find, we have a chapter on the prince's offerings. And here we have a little modification of what we earlier read about the gate being shut. Thus says the Lord God, the gate of the inner court facing east shall be shut the six working days. So this implies that the gate we read about before was the inner, inner gate. It shall be shut the six working days, but it shall be open on the Sabbath day and open on the day of the new moon. The prince shall enter by way of the porch of the gate from outside and stand by the post of the gate. And then the priest shall provide his burnt offerings and his peace offerings, and he will worship there. And then he'll go out. But the gate shall not be shut until the evening. So it does get opened specifically for the prince on Sabbaths and on new moons, which were the holy days in the Old Testament calendar. Now we have the first part of chapter 47 has water from the temple. And this is where we've been waiting this whole time to get this picture. The blue, of course, is the water. And in chapter 47, in verse 1, He brought me back to the door of the house. And behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under from the right side of the house from south of the altar. So that's why the, we find that the artist has put in the trickle of water coming here just south of the altar coming on out. And uh, why, does it have, why is it wider here than it was when it started? It keeps getting bigger and deeper. <laughs> it keeps getting bigger and deeper, yeah. I, I looked to see if anyone, any artist had drawn a picture of this. and the, There was one like from the Middle Ages, but it, it didn't. It didn't get the the uh, emotion that I really wanted, so I didn't give it for you. But he kept going a thousand cubits, and then he'd wade through the water. And finally, in verse five, he measured a thousand. It was a river I could not ford, for the water had risen enough water to swim in. A river that could not be forded. It was huge, and it all started with just a little trickle, just a tiny little trickle coming out of the temple. It just kept growing and growing and growing. In fact, it grows grew so much that. By the time it got down to the Dead Sea, what happened to the Dead Sea? It turned fresh and fish could live in it. Because at, at that time, and, and today as well, fish can't live in the Dead Sea. They, they, they come down the Jordan, and if any of them get swept on into the Dead Sea, they just die. It's too salty. Um, 
But this, this water is going to make it fresh. In fact, this, this river is so amazing. Verse 12, By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Now where in the New Testament do you have a picture like this? <laughs> Alright, John was ready for this question. At the end of the book of Revelation, of course, you have the river flowing through the city, trees growing on the, on the, the sides there and the, tree, and the trees are for the healing of the nations. Um, now, let me get a harder question. Where else, other than Revelation, do you have something that relates to this? That's a tough one. In the very beginning, wasn't there? Well, I'm, I'm looking for New Testament. Yeah. Oh, well, I was going to say Oh, well, and that's good. And that's very valid because the, the Bible starts with a river and ends with a river. And, and the two correspond to each other. I mean, the Garden of Eden was intended to be the original temple. And at the, at the end of Revelation, you have the temple, which is the entire city, because God is there and it has that, a river there. Yeah. Well, what I'm thinking of is a couple of passages in John. Yeah, Linda? Yeah. Yeah, the first passage I'm thinking of John is when Jesus talked to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And, you know, she was kind of making fun of him that he didn't have anything to draw water with. And he said, well, if you'd asked me, I would have given you living water. Whoa, living water. You don't have to come here and drink anymore. And then in John 7, he, he, he goes, I think he's talking about the same water in John chapter 7 and verse, um, well, in verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And doesn't that sound like what we've just covered? But this he spoke of what? The Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, Jesus puts an interesting twist on this. Here, we're, we're looking at this picture in this holy, holiest of places. The temple is where this water is coming out of. And then Jesus says it's going to come out of the, out of the stomachs of, of His followers. But it's not because we have just these amazing bellies. It's because we have the Holy Spirit in us. It's the, so each of us is a temple, which of course we find that the New Testament teaches that too. And out of, out of our lives comes water of life. So what's it mean that the water of the river would turn the Dead Sea fresh? Is there any sense in which the water coming out of us turns something dead? To life? Sharing the gospel. Yeah. We have the power to give life. But it's not us, it's the Holy Spirit. We have the water of life. And so this picture in Ezekiel, although when you first read it, you don't think of the church, but that's what was being prophesied of. And then ultimately, of course, the end of the book of Revelation. Um, we're all the way back to the Garden of Eden. 
And then finally, the end of chapter 47 and on into chapter 48, all the way to the end, in fact, is the division of the land. Um, and um, I've got a different picture here. I like this one because it was in color. But it didn't go as much into detail with this section here, so that's why I showed you the black and white one before. But this is a considerably larger area than what you had um, under Joshua. Under Joshua, the, the tribes only went up maybe up here, which is the south part of Manasseh. I mean, they've got one, two, three, four tribes north of that now. But also missing, interesting enough in this picture, is there's no tribes east of the Jordan either. But I'll tell you, they're not in the same place they were in Joshua's day. And I, I have no idea how this order works. I mean, Judah is now north of Jerusalem and Benjamin south. They were exactly the opposite under Joshua. And um, here you've got Issachar, Zebulun, and Gad. They were way up here in the north. Now they're at the very south. I don't know. Uh, but again, I'm not looking for this thing to be literally fulfilled. It's all being written in language that would mean something to the people of Ezekiel's day. Showing them that God still intended to fulfill His promises to His people. He was going to give them a land. They, they would be His people. And, and so all the, in fact, all the chapters we've been covering this morning have all been symbolic, looking way beyond the Old Testament times, on the time of Christ, and even into the time that, that we live now. And so I want to read the last verse of the book. And, and the, the, unlike some of these prophets, this book really ends with a great, a great phrase. The city shall be 18,000 cubits round about, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. <laughs> and that's, that's what we want. And of course, that's the way the book of Revelation ends, if, essentially as well. That there is no temple, there is no sun in this city because the Lord God is the sun. The Lord God is the temple. He is there. And the, the story of the whole Bible really is of... The, of from, from chapter 3 on is the fact that the Lord is not there. The Lord has had to remove Himself because of sin. And God works with His great power throughout the ages to bring about a situation where He can come back. And Ezekiel kind of pictures that in miniature because we see at the beginning of Ezekiel God leaving His temple and having to wipe out all these people because of their sinfulness. And at the end, He comes back to His temple and this great river comes out and turns the Dead Sea into fresh water. <laughs> well, at this point, we have covered well, well over half the book, half the Bible. We're, we're making a lot of progress. And I, I don't expect that any of you would look and say, oh, now I understand everything I've read so far. <laughs> but I do expect that you can look back and say, I understand what the point of, is of what I've read so far. You know, you may not understand every phrase. I don't understand every phrase. Nobody does. But you can certainly understand the point. I mean, we're at the end of the book of Ezekiel, some complicated things, but we understand the point of the book. And, and so what, what my hope was when we started this, and it remains now all the way to the end, is that when we get done, 
we'll know where everything fits. When someone mentions something from the book of Ezekiel, you'll understand where it fits in time. We worked very hard to show that it was it was after the the first major captivity and then on past the last captivity. And you'll understand that he prophesied things that go way beyond his time. Um, when we talk about the Law of Moses, you'll remember back how the, those are the first five books. It's been a long time since we did those, but you, I'm sure you remember reading about all the different sacrifices and um, what, the, what the priests did and, and so on. Or if someone names a king, again, you may not know all the kings in order, but you'll know approximately where it falls. So that when we finish, and this again is my hope and goal, you'll be able to go back and start reading it in Genesis 1 and it'll make a lot more sense the next time through. <clears throat> and each time through, you'll understand more than you did before. So it's an exciting thing. I'm just having a great time with this. <laughs> I appreciate everyone's help this morning.